What would my life and your life be like if we and the other 8 billion of us humans agreed to contain our worst mess to only half the land? What if we preserve the other half the planet for the use of everything else that lives here besides us? The birds, iguanas, snow leopards, you know, all that. There's an ingenious proposal out there that's called Half Earth that not only argues that this would be a generous idea, but that it might, in fact, be a brilliant way out of a lot of our troubles. And not only that, it might not be impossible. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. My own awareness of the project to save half the Earth for biodiversity and as a way that might slow climate change way, way down came from reading a book. This is Tony Hiss. I'm a writer based in New York, and I've just published my 15th book. It's called Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. The first work by Tony Hiss that I ever read was an eye-opening book called The Experience of Place. That was in 1991. The particular place that Tony has had the most experience with in his own life is New York City, specifically Manhattan. For 30 years, Tony wrote for The New Yorker magazine and has been a visiting scholar at New York University. Tony is passionate about the restoration of America's cities and landscapes and has contributed to a wide variety of transportation and environmental initiatives. It's exciting to me to meet a writer who's effective in getting people to consider ways that the planet might be a little bit different and how we might be a little bit kinder to plants and animals and ecosystems in the way that we build our cities and homes. Tony, it's an honor to have you here on The Shape of the World. So first, tell us, what's the reason that you and others think it's a good idea to protect 50% of all the land on Earth? This is perhaps the only way to stave off a mass extinctions crisis, which otherwise would threaten the continued existence of one million species of plants and animals. And the science is telling us that if we protect large amounts of land, then up to 85 to 90% of all plants and animals can survive. If we don't do it, then maybe sooner or later, only 25 to 50% of the animals and plants will survive. So we're in danger of losing half the species that live here with us, or more, it sounds like. And what do the experts on the subject think the probability is that we can meet that goal? The good news is that we're well on our way and just this year, the Biden administration has adopted, at least as an interim goal, protecting 30% of the United States by 2030. And in October, 196 nations will meet in Kungmin, China, to endorse this goal of 30 by 30. 30 by 30, meaning the goal is to protect 30% of land in the U.S. by the year 2030. That's only nine years away. What do you think? Does the United States have the willpower and buy-in from the American people to do something that big? The idea of protecting so much biodiversity and protecting so much land is an idea that's just calling out to people and is suddenly reaching them. There's a rewilding Europe campaign that's already well underway. Here in North America, humans occupy less than 40% of the place, so it's not like we're talking about displacing. I think there's an excellent chance it has a lot of merit, and it does fire up the imagination. I know the idea has been around for a few years now. What was the personal motivation for you to write this new book? The impetus for the book was just reading far too often about animals in trouble. We've had to coin a new word, endling. 
an endling is the last of its species, such as the last male northern white rhino who died a few years ago, or Lonesome George, the last Pinta Island Galapagos tortoise who died a couple of years ago at the age of 101. In the book, you described conversations that you've had with E.O. Wilson, a scientist and writer whose work I admire, so I envy you having had the opportunity not only to discuss this idea of saving a gargantuan amount of land for biodiversity, but to help the concept come into existence by being the person who came up with the name Half-Earth. Tell us a little bit about that experience with Dr. Wilson. I was lucky enough early on to meet Edward O. Wilson, the great biologist, someone who's been championing biodiversity for 30 years. E.O. Wilson took me on a trip to Florida, where a friend of his was rescuing the longleaf pine forests of the southeast. The longleaf pine forests once stretched from Virginia to East Texas. The friend that Tony talks about is M.C. Davis, a private landowner who has since died, But Mr. Davis was someone who made it his mission to save and restore as much of that forest as possible. Tony explains all this in the book, but in the next little bit, you're going to hear him talking about M.C. Davis, so I just wanted to slip that in. Well, we sat on the porch of the cottage that M.C. Davis had made, and as the evening shadows fell, Ed and M.C. were yarning away about their hopes, and suddenly we began to get this feeling of an endless expanse of time and space They began talking about the possibility of bringing buffalo back to the Florida panhandle, and they'd been extirpated around the time of the American Revolution. I said, well, how big a place are we talking about? And he said, well, we've got to get up to close to 50% to really give everything a chance. And I suddenly came up with the phrase half-earth, which Ed then ran with and wrote a book called Half-Earth. Later on, I found out that there were some people out west coming at this from their own angle, Their phrase is, nature needs half. Ed Wilson was thinking big. He said, sometimes you have to think beyond the possible in order to get people galvanized. Yes, that makes sense. So, okay, half Earth is the goal. And now suddenly that doesn't seem so outlandish. And when you say half the Earth, you mean literally like half of all the Earth, not just half of North America. I do mean half of the world, but it's North America that I was traveling around to see what's happening in our own backyard. The word save is ambiguous, right? So what is involved, exactly, in saving half of everything so that plants and animals have enough land to live in, and if something bad happens to the exact spot where they happen to be living, they have some place to migrate to, quickly if they're an animal, or if it's a plant, a way to relocate slowly over generations. To save in this context means taking an approach with three parts to it, responding to what's already on the land. In his book, Tony refers to these three parts as the three R's. Tony, what are the three R's? What I think of as the three R's, retain what is already wild, So if the land already sounds like this, a place that's full of lots of living things, finding their own way out in the wild, a place that may have people living on it, but that hasn't been heavily impacted by us humans, let's figure out a way to keep it that way. Keep what's wild, wild. Restore what was once wilder. 
So those places that maybe were cut for timber once, or that were grazed by cattle for a little bit, or used by us humans in some way that altered the land, but that retains good chunks that are still intact, and has others that could be nurtured with an eye toward bringing them back to something closer to a natural condition. That's the second R of restore. And reconnect those areas that are wild, but that have gaps in between. Animals that can't fly, the ones that travel by foot or they crawl on their bellies through the grass, they don't have a way to relocate when one small piece of habitat is separated from the next nearest piece of habitat by a new patch of concrete or a new road. Reconnection means establishing green passageways so that frogs and turtles and Florida panthers have the ability to move from one piece of wildland to another piece of somewhat wildland safely. We have models about how this might work. We already have some impossibly large preservation projects that go on and on for a thousand or more miles, and that connect up big pieces of preserved lands with smaller ones. These reserves make enormous amounts of habitat for plants and animals. And of course, when we're protecting plant life, we're also doing a big favor for our atmosphere. The more green, the better when it comes to slowing climate change. One example Tony Hiss brings up in his book is the 2,000-mile trail that runs through the Appalachian Mountains in the eastern part of the U.S. Like everything invented by humans, from the plow to the iPhone, this particular trail started out purely as fiction. In this case, it popped into the mind of one single man in 1921, precisely 100 years ago. One of the things I discovered is that thinking at that scale is not new. It's just becoming more widespread. One of the people who got it started was Benton Mackay, the craggy New England forester who dreamed up the Appalachian Trail. When he was graduating from college, he celebrated by bushwhacking up to the top of Stratton Mountain in Vermont, climbing up to the tallest tree he could find, swinging from its branches, and as he then said, I suddenly had in my mind the sense of a single place extending along the length of the Appalachians from Maine all the way to Georgia, what he later called a planetary feeling. And it wasn't just the peaks that he wanted to see protected, but the land around them on either side, what he called the Appalachian realm. And it's funny how it takes a while for huge ideas like that to percolate through us. But eventually big ideas do, don't they? Percolate through us, through our culture. They can start to seem inevitable when someone helps us see our surroundings, not by our staring at what's immediately around us, not just the few hundred foot diameter that we exist within, but thinking in a planetary way. Tony, what do you think that all of this half-Earth talk means for cities? Are we part of the half-Earth that gets protected, or are the cities conspicuously the other half? The 50 largest cities in the country, all the parkland they have between them, something like 80% of that parkland is still in natural condition. 
put all of that land together from those 50 cities, and it comes to a total that's about three-quarters the size of Yellowstone National Park. It's a vast landscape within the cities. At the same time, it's just as important for people in the cities to have access to this natural land. That's part of justice and social justice. So, yes, cities are very much a part of the half-Earth idea. You know, I also think that there's something to be said for that idea of part of the idea of half-Earth is that we voluntarily keep some parts of the Earth more thinly populated, that we don't create new cities in them. And I've often felt that one of the best things that someone can do for the environment is to remain living in a city rather than spreading out onto the open land. Well, I'm a city guy myself, Jill, but we're lucky enough to live in an old apartment in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. Out front is a busy street, 8th Street, buses, but in the back is this great common garden. There are some beautiful crabapple trees that were planted to 70 years ago. We get woodpeckers. There are blue jays that come over from Washington Square Park, which is about a block away. In front of the window of the president of New York University, red-tailed hawks have built a nest. And there's endless pickings for them, pigeons and rats. Washington Square Park is perhaps the most densely used park by human beings anywhere in the world, and yet it's a haven for the red-tailed hawks. In your first book, The Experience of Place, you talked about and helped us readers understand how profoundly each of us is affected by the places around us. That book came out 30 years ago. Do you feel the same way now? How are we humans affected by place? Jill, I think humans are very affected by place. Our minds are really working in several different ways at once. Most of the time, we're paying attention to the part of our minds that are closely focused on whatever it is we need to get done at the moment. But we're also listening in and tuning in on a much wider band that has to do with everything we see, hear, smell, taste. And we use that to orient ourselves. When I wrote The Experience of Place, I coined a phrase, simultaneous perception, for that. Then I wrote another book about 10 years ago called In Motion, The Experience of Travel. Whenever we're in a new place, suddenly everything seems more vivid. That's so true about travel. In my classes, I teach from the book Triggering Town by the poet Richard Hugo, and he encouraged his students not to write about the familiar, but to use a town that they didn't know as a way to trigger creation of poetry. There's something magical about leaving the familiar that seems to let creativity enter. In your book, you talked about the inventor of the Appalachian Trail, saying he had a planetary feeling. And you also talk later about something you call the overview effect. There are a few hundred people who've left the surface of the planet and gone into space. And so many of them, looking back at the Earth, talk about this as a profound experience that they see. It's wonder and it's beauty and it's vulnerability. I think what's now beginning to bubble up in people's minds feeling that same feeling, but down here below. That is one of the reasons why the half-Earth movement is becoming so powerful. E.O. Wilson coined the word biophilia, meaning he thinks we have an innate affinity for all of life. We're all affected by the same circumstances. And now that danger threatens the whole planet, it threatens all of life. To me, that planetary feeling, that sense of it, is something we just open ourselves up to. It's there, it's built into our apparatus. We don't always pay attention to it, but it's there.
Tony, have you ever lived someplace other than New York City? Well, I was actually born in Washington, D.C., and I went away to school. But growing up on 8th Street in Manhattan, it was always my ambition someday to live on 10th Street. <laughs> you really wanted to change it up, huh? <laughs> well, 10th Street seemed like a much more elegant block. But now I'm back where I started from, back on 8th Street. Are you in the same home that you grew up in? I am, actually. I'm talking to you from the apartment my parents rented in 1947, thinking it was probably a starter apartment. Circumstances made it permanent resident, and thank goodness it did, because it's a nice big old place and these beautiful crabapple trees out back. So you grew up in the city, even if you were in Washington, D.C., you were still in a city. When did you start to become aware of the nature side of the city? Well, I think I was always being taken to the park. My parents were both birders. My mother kept a life list of her birds. But I think it was when my dad's troubles began. His name was Alger Hiss, and he was accused of having been a communist and actually went to jail for four years or so. And he would write me as a way of us staying in touch. I'm not going to be able to get to Central Park this year. I wish you would go up there and be my eyes and ears. So I think that tuned my senses probably the reason I became a reporter. And then when I got out of college, I was lucky enough to be hired by the New Yorker magazine. And I cut my teeth writing talk of the town stories, which were very much like little reports, the kinds of things I'd been filing for my father years and years before. And as a way of getting to know a city as a single place. So beyond that, it seemed perfectly natural to think of other larger entities as a single place too. I think that's really interesting because some of the rest of us have had that experience of perhaps writing a letter to a parent. And because we know that our parent is also experiencing the world, we might not take the time to explain what's happening in the world. We don't have to mention what's happening with springtime. But when your father's incarcerated, it's a whole different thing. It's not just reporting on how you did in school, but what's happening in the world. And the idea that you were sending these reports to your father while he was in prison is amazing. Well, he was a pretty sharp guy, so I had to make a good job of it. I couldn't be sloppy about it. When your father was freed, were there particular places that he wanted to go right away? I'm sure he wanted to go home. But were there places that you remember going with him and sharing with him? When my father was freed, one landscape that he grew up loving was the eastern shore of Maryland. That's the flat peninsula, far side of the Chesapeake Bay. It's an ancient landscape because many of the fields were carved out in the 18th century and still have their original shape. And many of the towns date back to then. The reason that they still survive is that peninsula was always considered 15 minutes too far away from everything to become urbanized. An extraordinary land trust down there have already proclaimed the goal of protecting half of that landscape by the year 2030. And they're calling it the Delmarva Oasis, Delmarva being Delaware, Maryland, Virginia. The idea is that this land will be protected, but it doesn't have to become owned by the government. Most of it can remain private land with conservation easements that limit development. This was another great American idea, like Yellowstone, with a so-called Green Line Park where you would proclaim a place to be special, but you wouldn't have to own it. You just have to have an agreement that will stay special. The great American Green Line Park is the Adirondack Park up in the north of New York State at 6 million acres. It's an idea we let get away from us. And after World War II, the English created a whole new national park system based on Green Line Parks. They've now protected something like 30% of the English landscape with the parks and with a second layer that they call areas of outstanding natural beauty 
which even they say is a clunky name. So from outstanding areas, we got OA to Oasis. And the Delmarva people are not only working hard on this, but it looks as though they may be the prototype for yet another whole new system of parks in this country. So, Tony, what's next for you? It takes a long time to write a book, so I assume that probably in some ways it already seems like a long time since you were working on rescuing the planet. What's next? Or do you have another book in mind, or do you have a particular project that you want to work on? At the moment, I'm very eager to stay helpful and useful to anyone working on half-Earth ideas. So how this book can encourage people to realize that there are reasons to be encouraged, because so much is happening. So many different strategies are being tried out. If we are going to get to 30 by 30 or beyond that to 50 by 50, it's still a daunting task, but it looks like something that's within our reach. I find that extraordinarily hopeful. Tony, thank you so much for being on The Shape of the World. This has been great to hear about your book and the project. Thank you so much, Jill. I really appreciate your having me on the show. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Tony Hiss gives you fresh hope about what the world could one day become. A place where half the earth is protected for nature to flourish. The Shape of the World is about nature, cities, and people, and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. The Shape of the World is a completely carbon-neutral endeavor thanks to reductions we've made and from a carbon offset purchased from Tradewater. If you're interested in eliminating your carbon footprint, go to the website tradewater.us. You can find Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find out more about Tony Hiss's work and a drawing of Tony by the artist Nicole Vigil, and much more. The Shape of the World's audio engineer is Andy Bosnack. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Tony Hiss.